Um, this morning, as Jack shared, um, I'm going to be speaking from Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. And this is actually um, Job's response to God. If you've been here um, over the last maybe two or three weeks, this is, we're kind of approaching um, the end um, to a very interesting situation here. It's a mystery what's happening in the book of Job and the story of Job. And so we're kind of approaching the last couple of um, stories and conversation that happens between Job and God. A little bit about um, a very uh, maybe unfortunate part of life that I, that I experienced. That sounds really dramatic. Actually, it wasn't that bad. I was about 18 years old, and I've been to about, I would say, probably 11 or 12 kids' camps. Um, kids' camps that we had focus, we had mission, we were determined. We wanted to have fun, right? We wanted to introduce kids into a space where they could be themselves, but also experience God, where they could maybe hear from God, experience God, but also connect and have a relationship with their friends around them. And I remember a year, it was like my second kids camp ever. I was about 18 years old, and I've got like six or seven kids, and these kids are rowdy. These are fourth graders, and if you got a fourth grader, you know of any? Fourth graders are like at that level where they think they own the space that they're in kind of the big dogs on campus. And I had a bunch of fourth graders, and I had one in particular that was just not having a good time. He was like, you know what? I don't care what you do. I'm not going to have a good time. You can't force me to have a good time. I don't like that I'm here. That's just what it's going to be. And so I, you know, tried really hard. We, my buddy that was a co-counselor with me, we, we said, okay, let's get on the water slide. Let's try that. You don't like that. Okay, let's do archery. You don't like that. Who doesn't like archery? Let's do horseback riding. And nothing that we did could satisfy him. So we sat down one night. There's a campfire going on. And this is maybe night three. And we go, okay, what can we do so that you have a great time? By this time, we've taken this child away from the group because we don't want him to then influence the group. And they're having a good time. We're sitting down. And he's like, I need some water. So I bring him a cup of water. And as I put the water down, he picks it up. He drinks it. I kid you not, he spits it out. And he goes, that's too warm. And it was at that point, my life flashed from my eyes because I grew up in the spanking culture. And I'm just kidding. And that's a hot topic. I did not spank the child. I didn't think of it. But I was very upset because he spit out the water that we got for him. I was like, you know what this child needs? His mom. <laughs> he needs his dad or his mom. And so I said, no, let's call your parent. That's one of the things we never did at camp. Like, let's, don't call parents unless you have to. And we pick up the phone, call mom. She talked to him. And it was like instantly his demeanor was like, it was changed. It was like, okay, I just heard mom's voice. He essentially experienced kind of the presence of mom through phone, but not physically being there. But that was all that it took. And from that moment on, that time got better for him. He kind of inched back into things. He's like, I can do this now. Okay, fine. I'll smile a little bit. But he missed his mom so much and he needed to hear the voice just to continue on. That's how I envision what's happening here with Job as God responds to him. So we're going to look at Job's response and then tell, kind of let that speak to us and maybe inform how we might and what that teaches us about how to respond to God. I think it's really important, too, to consider this. And as we read it, if we choose to interpret or even understand, and Silas touched on this, I think, the second week, it's interesting how we interpret this scripture here and how we interpret Job, because if we choose to understand it with just pure logic, like we just go with our heads and go, I just want to try to understand with simple logic, I think we'll miss the value in the story of Job. We'll miss it completely because it doesn't make logical sense. So we don't want to miss that. 
In fact, there's a quote here, quoting Bill Johnson, he's from a Bethel Church in Reading, and he says this, and I'll throw it on the screen. Thanks. Eternity is the cornerstone of all logic and reason. Right? Anytime we lose sight of eternity, we are bound to come to temporary and false conclusions. This is an important statement that kind of resonates with me, and I think it speaks to me in seeing things, and it tells me this, that seeing things from, eternal, from an eternal perspective changes absolutely everything. If eternity is the cornerstone of our logic and reason, it's easy. Like, we can't lose sight of eternity. Otherwise, we're going to be bound to things that only make sense to us in present time. Does it fit what I need to right now? Does it fit where I'm at in this current space? Does it make sense for me to purchase this? Or does it make sense for me to go with this group? Does it make sense for me to join in on this team? Does it make sense for me to be a part of this community? What is it going to do for me right now, right? If we lose sight of the eternal perspective, it's not about right now, the here now, but it's there, there's an eternal perspective that has to be considered. Otherwise, we start creating our own logic and own reasoning for it to make sense for our own good. This is part of the problem, part of the, the issues that are happening through the story of Job. So I said today, you know, we're going to obviously look at Job's response, but I want to highlight a few of God's responses because Earlier in the book of Job, a couple chapters back, God is actually giving a little response here. And I want to just highlight a few. I don't want to read it all to you. We'll be here all day, and I know some of you want to watch the Super Bowl. Um, and if you're like, what's the Super Bowl? Then never mind. You're here for a reason, I guess. So here's a few highlights from God's response. Job 38.2 tells us this. God says this. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? What a statement. 48 says this. Will you discredit my justice, this is God speaking, and condemn me just to prove you are right? Verse 2 says, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? First thing I appreciate about how God, God basically questions and responds to Job before Job gives his response is the fact that God's ask, he's asking questions. He's asking questions and he's not just coming down immediately hard. There are moments where God says some things that are pretty hard-hitting, but he's got a, a large chunk, and it's just to highlight, a large chunk of questions that I believe in my heart and my spirit, I believe God approaches us in conversation always assuming the best. This is one of the things that I, I just I love about when God speaks and he has conversation with people in Scripture. He is always leading them to search their own hearts and assuming the best because of, can you throw that back up? If, if Job is like, I have all the answers, obviously he doesn't. But if that's the answer, what do we do with that? God knows he doesn't have the answer, but God is inviting Job. There's that word invitation again. He's inviting Job to search his own hearts and understand, Job, what are you really asking? Where are you coming from? He wants us to search our hearts. I think also what's happening here is there is, God is revealing truth. Right? With, with, who is that that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Will you discredit my justice? Jack spoke on justice last week. Is God not just? Job's like, I don't know. Prove it. Is this a just situation? That's the question. God, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You're God's critic, but do you have the answers? There's some truth that God is revealing. I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we sit and sometimes we think or maybe we try to strategize in our mind, 
And we try to understand the why. The temptation often comes up, and I've, say this, I've said this twice or three times, I'll say it again. The temptation is to create a narrative that we can't cope with. And God is going, that's not who I am. God's not name-calling. He's not condemning Job. He's just going, who, who do you say I am? Like, who, who do you know me to be? In Job chapter 40, verse 6, this sticks out, and this is what's going to be kind of some glue that I'm going to piece together this morning. 40, verse 6 says this, before God speaks, it says, Then the Lord answered Job from a whirlwind. Has anyone ever been in a whirlwind before? A tornado? A hurricane? Those are all kind of life-threatening. You're all here, so perhaps not. A whirlwind to me speaks to volume, destruction, loudness, chaos. And I can't get away from the fact that Scripture mentions that he answered Job from the whirlwind. It's as if God responds like a little bit ironically. Job's already experiencing a whirlwind. He's already going through something that's difficult. And God says, I'm going to appear to you maybe in the form that you might understand. Because if I came to you calm... You might not listen to that. That might not make sense to you. You've already heard some of the junk that your friends have shared. I'm going to come and I'm going to speak through a whirlwind in the midst of chaos and speak authority in a space that feels chaotic. I think there's something about the way that God enters conversation with Job that's amazing when he says he spoke through a whirlwind. The way that God is present in the midst of chaos Blows my mind. I'm going to show you a picture of a church that I grew up in. This is in Pittsburgh, California. This is Mount Zion Baptist Church. Um, there is a lot of history took place here. A lot of my, my first mistakes, a lot of my public shaming, um, a lot of my um, discipline from parents. Mom, if you're watching, Dad. A lot of it happened there. Um, but that's beside the point. There is a, there's a quote, and it's already up there. That, that happened that I learned in this space. And as a kid and as a child, my sister and I, we'd always laugh at it because it, it was always thrown around in the funniest moments, um, in the moments of, man, we're so hungry right now, and all of a sudden food comes in. We say, he may not come with you when you want him, but he's always right on time. Really, the, the essence of this is he may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. We heard this as adults and those that were older and grandparents and uh, elderly folk were talking when they were testifying to God's goodness, when they were trying to make sense of something they didn't quite understand, they were maybe in a stuck in a moment where they were waiting on God for something and they couldn't predict when he would come or how he would come, but they knew that he came right on time. And we joke about that sometimes, but that was a kind of a phrase, a quote that just sticks and I still hear it over and over today. I don't repeat it, but I hear it and I live through it because we got to have faith that God knows what he's doing. The way that God shows up and the way he comes in a whirlwind is very unique. It's very, very right on time. Three conversations ago, just the three friends and then a mysterious character, Elihu, they all had, they all had their speeches to Job. They all tried to convince Job, here's what you're doing. And before Job even responds to Elihu, God says, let me come onto the scene and let me just put an end to this chaos for you right here. Who do you say? That I am. He starts speaking life, and he starts kind of giving some validation to what Job is feeling. 
I'm going to show you something else here that speaks to me. And it's a picture of, in the honor of the Super Bowl, this isn't really Super Bowl, but um, yeah, we can skip that one for now. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, not that one. It's a picture of a Coliseum. You'll see it soon. And I grew up, like I said, in Pittsburgh, California. Oakland, California is in the Bay Area. That's where uh, the Oakland A's play. Any baseball fans? Okay, awesome, awesome. I'm not a baseball fan because I'm going to share this experience with you. I don't want to want you to assume that I love baseball and then you talk about baseball. I won't know what you're talking about. But the experience is unique because I went. I grew up in this in a space where we would go to what's called the Oakland Coliseum, and it's this large, just spherical dome of a place. It didn't have a top on it, but just round stone, just the the ugliest probably stadium in all of baseball. And I'm guarantee I've been there a thousand times. I remember a time where I went with a group of friends and I'd go often. And in this time that I went, it was 85 degrees. It was in the summer. And to get there, you take Bart's train. You have to walk across a bridge. It's a full body workout. Like I already sweat easily. So I'm like, you know what? As a kid, I'm not going to carry a jacket or carry a coat. It's 85, 90 degrees. So as we walk in, we have a good time. We sit down. I remember by the seventh inning stretch, it's about 8.30, 9 o'clock and the sun starts to go down, you can guess what's about to happen. It starts, the temperature drops, pressure changes, it gets cold. And I am sitting there vulnerable in my shorts and my short sleeves. At the time, I was comfortable, but now I'm getting kind of cold. And I remember this happened three or four times, like I'd never learned my lesson. I forget to bring covering, I forget to bring a jacket or a sweater, and I'm freezing. I can no longer pay attention to the game. I can no longer pay attention to the $1 hot dog or the terrible nachos that hurt your stomach. I can't, I can't pay attention to those things anymore. All I can pay attention to is the change in temperature, the way that the wind is blowing and smacking me in the face. The atmosphere has changed. The pressure has changed. The strong gust of wind is distracting me, right? It's inevitable. I have to brace myself for it. I think when God reveals himself in the midst of our misery, the spiritual atmosphere shifts, I know that word spiritual, it's kind of like spooky, but I believe that, that that's true. I think God revealed himself, spoke through a whirlwind, through his voice, and immediately Job's position changed. I'm going to show you how. There's a visual that's called Can Fire in the Park, and it's the art image by Buford Delaney. Sorry if I confuse you back there with the slides, bro. Um, this is an image, and I'm going to read to you what has been taken from this image. It's called Canfire in the Park. It says, Canfire in the Park is as much as a thickly applied painting as it is an image of a place. Delaney developed a vocabulary of signs, street lights, fire hydrants, manhole covers, zigzagging fire escapes that became maybe just riffs on city life. In Canfire, the bright yellow orbs of street lamps and the glow of the moon against a cloud-filled night sky and hear from the fire embrace the men with waves of color and light. That's one way to interpret and read the painting. And that is just what I've found by looking at art online. By the way, Buford Delaney... He's an impressionist, he's a son of a preacher, he's an innovator, he's an amazing artist, if you want to look him up. 
This is another way that you can interpret this painting, and this is another thing that's been stated. The research done, done on Delaney tells us this, that Delaney struggled financially for most of his life. So this empathetic scene may also represent a night he once spent on a park bench and the friendship he shared with other homeless men. You might look at this painting and you might see something else. Something else might pop out or something else might speak to you. This is how this painting spoke to me when I try to interpret interpret it through a biblical lens. This is what I see. I see a group of people who are desperate for warmth, that are desperately trying to gather around and center around that which has given them life. And they're also doing it in a community. They're also doing it with friends. I imagine there's conversation happening. How was your day? What was today like? How are you doing on funds? What are you eating for dinner? Right, these are real questions. They're in a park. It's at night. Around a fire. I liken that biblically to what we gather around when we come to church. Like, you guys didn't all show up to hear me speak. I'm not like a prolific speaker, right? We don't gather around Scripture, although it's authoritative. I believe we gather around the presence of God. That's, that's the intention. That's the goal. Why? So that we can be comforted, so that we can experience warmth. How that happens is up to us. There's a, there's a variable of ways. There's many ways we do that. But I believe when we gather around the presence of God and we, we seek to hear his response and we hear his voice, there's something that happens in our hearts and there's something transformational that happens in our spirits. So if we look at Job and his response, I'm going to get right into it and we're just going to break it down for the next few moments here. This is the one thing to understand about chapter 42, verses 1 through 6 of Job. I first read through it, and maybe you heard it, and it actually, for me, my first read through it sounded like, man, Job's apologizing. Like, he's just on his face on the floor, like, whoops, I made a mistake. And then the more I read it, the more I looked at it, I was like, wait a minute, Job's actually repenting. In a sense, right now, don't get me wrong, Job is blameless, right? We're certainly, I'm certainly not accusing Job of anything that he's done. Scripture hasn't said that he's done anything wrong to deserve what he's gotten. But he's, he's repenting in a sense. And I'm asking myself, what is Job turning away from? That's repentance, right? You're just going the other direction. You're turning away. You're going, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. No, thank you. Here's what stuck out to me. One is this, that in Job's repentance... After experiencing the presence of God through his speech in the whirlwind, through that experience with God, he acknowledges God's power. He acknowledges God's power. He says this, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. I think Job understands that. I think he knows that God can be powerful. I think he knows that maybe he is powerful, but he's yet to actually have a moment in his presence. So that moment in his presence caused him and compelled him to actually speak to it, profess it, say it out loud, and say, I believe this with my heart. He's having this moment after 
being in a moment in the presence of God's voice. And that's what he's compelled to do. When you compare that to what Job did before that moment, when he's just in his own space, when he's trying to gain what's happening, he's trying to understand what's happening, trying to find reason for it, he doesn't have this moment yet. It's not there yet. He acknowledges God's power. In Job's repentance, he also admits to being limited in his knowledge. Right? He says this, I admit I was, I was the one I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders that were way over my head. He admits he doesn't know it all. He admits he babbled. He admits he said some things. God's not saying, hey, you need to apologize for things you said about me. But Job's going, just out of the abundance, out of what's happening by hearing your voice and being a part of this moment in your presence through a whirlwind, I'm compelled to also say that I was wrong. I babbled. I didn't know what I was talking about. This one stuck out to me in a large way. Humility is the one thing I think that I will say myself and as a community and as a world, I think we struggle with the most. It is really, really, really hard to say, I was wrong. You might be like, I say I'm wrong all the time. Fine. I said me, okay? Made it personal. Sigrid, I say I'm wrong sometimes, yeah. (laughs) It's hard to say I'm wrong. It's hard to go, I don't know what I'm doing. Asking for help, and I'm not going to just assume, but asking for help in our context as Americans, living where we live, it's hard to ask for help sometimes. It's hard to say, I need help. I need help understanding this. You're afraid of what people might think, afraid of what people might say. But a moment in the presence of God's voice changed that for Job and caused him to go, you know what? doesn't matter. Humility is what I need. In Job's repentance, he experienced true transformation. I think something was happening in Job that couldn't really be described by words. As we read through the book of Job and as we look at it, similar to our lives, there are things happening inside of us and with us that won't even be spoken about in this circle. Right? If I said, turn to your neighbor and tell me your deepest, darkest thing you're struggling with, how many of us would be like, I'm down, let's do that? That's very vulnerable. That's very intimate. As we look at the life of Job and we we journey through what he was experiencing, this was not just a one-time thing. It wasn't a weekend situation. He didn't walk in with a bad conversation on Friday with a friend and just mourn the rest of the weekend. This took time to develop. And as that time developed, he began to have somewhat of a transformation of mind. And now we're seeing it's happening with his heart after that moment in the presence of God's voice. Matthew 5.8 says this, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We understand that Job didn't see God. We understand that see doesn't mean literally see. But I think it speaks to more of an awareness. There is a spiritual and mental awareness of God that exists. When I say we want to see God here, we want to experience God here, it's an awareness of his presence It's not always a full understanding of his presence. It's not always a full understanding of everything that is happening. It's not always answers to all of the questions, but it's an experience and it's awareness of where he is. And so I believe that Job and his repentance, believe his heart was made pure. 
The Message Bible says this. It says, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand. Right? He allowed God to come near in the midst of his pain. I once heard rumors. By the way, this was someone in Scripture that said previously he was the greatest in all of the East. Right? This was a great man. We, we think of Job as this amazing man of God that did nothing, but all of a sudden he's pulled into the situation. He said, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand. Even Job saying I was just living by rumors. Man, a moment in the presence of God and just hearing his voice shift a perspective for Job that he had not experienced yet. New Living Translation says it like this. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. When we humble ourselves before God, God begins a transformation in our lives. It's a real thing. I think for me, a moment of humility and a moment of humbling myself before God can look like a number of things. Do I think Job's situation was set up to humble him? I don't think so. I don't think God's an egomaniac. I don't think he needs to hurt anyone to get their attention. I don't think that was the point, right? So I don't want to go down that route. But I believe, I believe there was something happening in Job that was unspeakable, something that can only be taken out, something that can only be extracted through a moment with God. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can ask ourselves this question is, what is God doing in my heart? What is God trying to extract in out of me, not only in your worst situation, but in your life, period? It's so backwards. We go, man, life is so tough. I can't believe what's happening. God, what are you doing here? God's like, hey, I was, I was doing that same thing when, when you bought a new house. I was, do, I was doing that same thing when life was going great. I was doing that same thing when you're at your happiest moment. You just couldn't understand or you just didn't slow down to realize it. And there's, there's a great picture image that I got. And there's, there's a, um, a lady, her name is Corey Tenboom. Has anyone heard of her? And she writes a devotional book. And a little bit of her, tiny bit of her, her backstory history um, her and her family actually helped Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust, you might know this, during World War II, and, and saved almost 800 lives. This is amazing. And here's what's written in her devotional book. It says this. She said, In my dwelling, in my dwelling, under the shadow of the Almighty, sometimes it's dark because he's so close. That is so true about times that are painful. But can I say this too? That is so true about times that are joyful. He doesn't eject. He doesn't just go away because we feel like life is lived fantastically. He is the same God. But I love the way she says this because in a way that gives comfort to a moment where you feel like it's dark. She says sometimes it's dark because he's so close. Sometimes it's his nearness that causes things to be out of focus. It's that shadow of presence that sometimes we mistake by natural interpretation rather than what Scripture says. And what does Scripture say? We are in the shadow of the Almighty. That is Scripture. God's presence.
present is, God's presence is revealing something, and it reveals things in us that we need to work on, listen to, and submit our lives to in a way of humility. So here's a closing question that I have for you this morning. I won't keep you super long. Question to consider. Will I humble myself before God and allow him to, allow him to do the work that needs to be done in my spirit and in my heart? Will I humble myself before God? It was in humility that Job did speak out and kind of have his moment in the book of Job. I don't want to miss that. He's not acting as if, not as if he's not, he's not uh, humble. But he did have to continue down in this path of transformation before he had that moment with God. God already, God already planned to respond. It was the moment that he chose that made it so unique and so important. Well, I humble myself before God and allow him to do the work that needs to be done in my spirit and in my heart. Will you humble yourself before God and say, listen, I need your presence more than I need your answers. And that is a big one that is big for me. What would you rather have? <laughs> answers to the mysteries that can't be solved, the whys, or do you want a moment in his presence that's going to help you be a whole person and wrap it all together because we're not going to have all the answers. This is the work that I believe we're invited into, and we're all a part of it together. As I close this morning, I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up. And Silas, um, or Maj, sorry, could you throw that question back up there one more time? Just so we can sit with it a little bit for about a few seconds. Will I humble myself before God and allow him to do the work that needs to be done in my spirit and my heart? And, and I want to be really clear. I know it sounds, we talk about the presence of God and the spirit and the heart. I know it sounds, these are like kind of not, you can't grab it and touch it and hold it, right? So it's kind of like, ah. Uh. But really what it is, it's, it's a position that we have to put ourselves in a posture. It's a positioning, right? This isn't something where you can, I'm going to make a checklist. Got it. I've just done it, right? I've just answered the question. This is a position of the heart that you have to posture yourself in such a way that you go, I don't have all of the questions, and I'm okay with that. And so, God, because I'm okay with that, because I'm going to live under this blanket of understanding that I need you, I need to hear you speak, I need your presence in my life, I'm going to live in that space of humility and let you do the transformational work that you're doing. And then let's see what happens. See what God brings from you. See what he brings out of you. And see what he does through you. All right? And most of all, life isn't simply about doing things. But this is a heart thing. So I want to make that clear. This is a positioning and posturing of heart. And I think this is what this conversation with Job and God is about. God, thank you so much for what you've um, taught us and led us through through your story. Thank you that it's a story that's not ending, but it's a story that we're on a journey and it's a continuing story. God, I pray that as we do the deeper work, God, as we put ourselves in a posture to just sit with you, God, to be and hear from you, God, I pray that we would humble ourselves enough 
to acknowledge that we just don't have all the answers and that's fine. God, we thank you for what comes out of that space of presence. For Job, it was repentance. It was acknowledging your power. For us, that might be something else. But God, I pray that work is done. I pray that work is started. God, I pray that we would gather around you, God, that we would sense and feel your spirit. God, that we would not forget to gather around your presence to hear your voice, and that we would not push back around your transition.